Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, thankful for the one who was willing to come from heaven to be incarnated as a human being and to live and to die and to rise again for our salvation. Father, the hope is so glorious. And the fact that we, as we live in this uh, ever-increasing chaos down here, look forward to the day which we will stand in your presence. That joy, that hope is solidly based in our faith in your word. And so as we study your word this morning, we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God will illuminate our minds and our hearts according to his divine plan, according to the needs that are in each of our lives this morning. Lord, I thank you for each of the men and women here today and pray that you will bless each life individually, that you will bless us corporately this morning, and that above all, the will of God will be accomplished in each of our lives. Bless as the word is proclaimed throughout this campus today in the service and in the various classes. We pray that this will be a day in which somewhere here on this uh, property this morning, there will be those who will come into the kingdom of God and will know you as we have come to know you. Father, we just commit this day to you in this time. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 8th chapter of Judges, the 8th chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read beginning at verse 13. Judges 8, 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him, the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of that city. Well, God has used Gideon in a mighty way, and it's clear from what God did that Gideon was to be seen as Shophat, to be seen as the next deliverer, as judge, as we would uh, use the term, and that a mighty army has been routed by a force so small that it could take absolutely no credit for any of what was done. And as they have pursued the fleeing Midianites uh, down through the valley of Herod over towards the uh, Jordan River itself, and along that way, beginning with the great camp there at the base of the hill of Mora, and, and scattered all the way down to the river were, of course, the bodies of tens of thousands of men as they slew each other in their mad retreat. And then, of course, at the fords where the Ephraimites captured the fords and slaughtered a bunch more, those that had escaped across, now Gideon pursued, and he captured them south of Rabbath Ammon and uh, slew or destroyed disoriented and slew uh, another 15,000 men, the remaining Midianites, and captured their two kings. It's been a busy couple of days for Gideon and for his men. And of course, what we have to realize too is as you think about this thing, and if you can possibly visualize all of this, which is hard to do, of course, we, we recognize that uh, the people of Israel, as, as this army has been destroyed, there's a tremendous amount of loot lying around you know, in the tents of the camp and, and on the corpses of the men who had fled. And, and, of course, a lot of people were having a good time doing a lot of looting, including, of course, the men who were involved in the actual combat or the, the pursuit. 
You remember as Gideon crossed the River Jordan just to the east of the Jordan River where the Jabbok River comes down out of the highlands of Gilead, on the plain there was the city of Succoth. And he asked the city of Succoth if they would provide some bread for his men. They had been in pursuit of the enemy now for many hours for actually better part of a full day. And they were very hungry and the city refused because they said, well, why should we give you food because you're such a small army and we don't see the kings of the Midianites in your control. And obviously, if we give you help and they win, we are in trouble. So Gideon promised, I'll be back and you'll pay. And they went further up the Jabbok Valley to the little town of Penuel, Peniel, Penuel, and said the same thing, got the same response, and he promised that he would be back to deal with them too. Well, he's back. True to his promise, Gideon has returned. And he's come back by the way of Herez. That simply means the way of the sun, the exact location of that. Nobody really knows, but it's certainly one of the descents down from the high point of Gilead. He's come back to deal with these two towns. Now, let, let me just give you uh, a little background on Succoth and Penuel or Peniel. Let me go back for a moment to Genesis chapter 33. In the 33rd chapter of Genesis, we have the story, of course, of Jacob. And uh, Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau, from whom he has been estranged for over 20 years. And he's very uncertain about this meeting. And we know that uh, he had a, a significant encounter previously with the Lord. And in verse 17 of chapter 33, we read this, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth, which means booths or cattle stalls. And so this was a place, whether the town itself was founded by Jacob, Jacob was here at this particular place. And he had built a house for himself there, which of course may have been the house around which the city eventually, or the town eventually uh, develop. We don't know. So it, it has a great heritage, has a great foundation, but obviously these men are long distant from that heritage, not only in time, but in spiritual outlook. If you go back to the 32nd chapter of Genesis, where Jacob is having his little wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, in verse 30 of the 32nd chapter of, yes, we read, so Jacob named the place, this is the place where he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, Peniel. For he said, I have seen, the, seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. So we're talking about a place where, which commemorated the great face-to-face -face encounter that Jacob had had with the angel of the <laughs> Lord. So Gideon, a man who had had a face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord, is dealing with a people who had forgotten their heritage too, who had rejected the word of the Lord, who, had, who said, in effect, you're not the Shofat in our eyes. And so he comes back to deal with these people too. Now, the leaders of both of these towns had refused to believe the word of the Lord as it came through the mouth of Gideon. And they also, of course, refused to believe that Gideon was the ordained deliverer. Now, we might have some reason to understand that 
if it weren't for the fact that he with 300 men has just totally discomfited an army of 135,000. I mean, what more testimony do you need to the truth of Gideon's claim that he's speaking the word of the Lord and that he is God's ordained deliverer? I mean, this could not have happened any other way except by the might and the power of God. And that reminds me of Jesus' words uh, in the book of Luke, where the rich man, when he died, said to Abraham, I'd like to go back and tell my five brothers about this so they won't come here. And the response was that even if a man returns from the dead, they will not believe, if they will not believe the word of the Lord through the prophets. And that's been, to me, always a, a powerful statement. I, you know, it's really nice to have physical manifestation of God's glory. It's always wonderful to have miracles and those kinds of things. But generally speaking, those do not transform lives. The life is transformed by hearing the word of God and believing. That's how lives are transformed. Sometimes miracles, of course, are useful for confirming faith. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why Jesus performed them, to validate his word, his message. But it's through the word that lives are changed. Obviously, the men of Succoth and the men of Penuel did not believe. Wisely, Gideon obtained the names of the city elders ahead of time. We're told that he captured a young man and he asked the young man to write down the names of the leaders of the city and the young man obliged and he did so. He wanted to be sure that he was disciplining the right people. It's very, very important that that be true. When the first crusade came across from Europe and left Germany and left France and marched through Europe on the way to aid Constantinople in relieving the attack of the Turks, they slaughtered anybody along the way who'd looked foreign to them. They killed many Orthodox Christians. They killed many Jews as well as Turks. They, let, they, they were not distinguishing one from the other. They were doing it all supposedly in the name of the Lord. Sad commentary, of course. But Gideon wanted to make sure that he disciplined the true offenders. The ones who were responsible, because certainly there would have been people in the city who, who, would, have, who would have said, sure, sure, I'll, I'll give you some bread. But the elders had said no. And we're told here that he made whips out of thorns and briars, and he laid it on the backs of these men. At Penuel, though, the situation was a little bit more serious. There he tore down the main tower that defended the city. And the scripture says he killed the men of the city. Well, it's most likely that he didn't just go through the city seeking all the men and slaughtering them, but the, it seems that what is being said here is that those men who attempted to defend the tower to prevent him from doing this were slaughtered by Gideon. Now, the punishment might seem severe to us for simply not giving bread, but we have to remember he refused to give aid to weary, tired men who were in the pursuit of the enemy. To refuse to give your own countrymen aid in a literal life and death situation is, for all practical purposes, treason. And so actually they got off with fairly light punishment from that uh, perspective. The famous 19th century German commentator Delitzsch uh, says this, Having been called by the Lord to be the deliverer and the judge of Israel, it was Gideon's duty to punish the faithless cities. I think it's really important, and I think that we do, because of our understanding of Scripture, come at this from the right perspective. And we recognize that when you read the Scripture, you have to understand the reasons behind the events which transpire. 
there are many critics of the Bible who do not approach it that way, and they just read the Old Testament as one bloody thing after another without understanding the real meaning and purpose behind the events and by the judgments which occur. Let's read on in the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 18 of, Je of Judges, 8 verse 18. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, They were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord's live, as the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise up and kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise up yourself and fall on us. For as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks, symbols of their royalty. These were the two actual leaders of, uh, of, of Midian. The two others that had been captured earlier by the Ephraimites were the actual military commanders, but these were the royal leaders of the nation. There's no biblical record of this event that Gideon is referring to here about his brothers being killed at Tabor by these two men. We don't know for sure from this passage except by implication as to whether his brothers had been uh, killed in a battle or if they had just been murdered. Now, we're told in this passage that, the, that this occurred at Tabor. Mount Tabor is directly north of the hill of Marah, about 10 miles. And so from the camp at Tabor, apparently a raiding squad had gone north and at the mountain of Tabor, somewhere in that vicinity, they had uh, come across Gideon's brothers, plus undoubtedly some other individuals, and they had killed them. Now, the severity of Gideon's reaction here seems to imply that they had not died in battle, that this had not just been a battle in which the Midianites won and the Israelites lost and were killed, because Gideon probably wouldn't react this way if it had been a fair battle. The implication is that they had died cruelly at the hands of murderers, that they had been executed, that they had not been allowed to live when they could have been allowed to live. What's interesting about this is the reaction of these two kings. The kings not only didn't deny the killing, which of course anybody in our government today would immediately do, but they foolishly admitted that the men they killed looked like Gideon. <laughs> well, they looked just like you. Oh, smart, you know, right, <laughs> good idea. And, and then possibly to flatter Gideon, they describe them as having the appearance or the stature of the sons of a king. <laughs> oh, they look like you. Well, and by the way, they look like royalty to us. Oh, good. Well, dig the hole a little deeper, why don't you? Gideon's reaction is very interesting here. He has every right to slay them because, uh, first of all, they are the, the kings of the enemy nation, which has brought such havoc on Israel for eight years and caused horrible deaths of many, but because they're murderers. And God had made it clear in his word that those who cause the blood, shed the blood of, of one on the ground by their blood shall that blood be atoned. And so Gideon apparently wanted to humiliate these two men. Now what is interesting is whether Ziba and Zalmunna are actually the real names of the two individuals in, in Midianite. 
we, we of course, don't know because everything is written, most everything in the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. All we know is that the Hebrew meaning of Ziba is sacrifice. And the Hebrew meaning of, of Zalmunna is uh, protection withheld or withdrawn. <laughs> Very appropriate here, actually, <coughs> for these two individuals because they will be a sacrifice and their protection has been withdrawn from their, you know, their gods. And so Gideon what decided that the best way to humiliate them is to slay them with a youth, uh, an unproven warrior. Now for you and for me, uh, without having been raised in a warrior code, we wouldn't really maybe understand that that is true humiliation. But all you have to do is go back to the Middle Ages in Europe. And for a great knight, uh, a great champion, to die at the hands of, of a woman or a, or a young man or somebody who wasn't a warrior was a terribly humiliating thing. And so this is what he's trying to do. He's going to have his own son kill these two guys. Well, Gideon's son, Jether, who's, who's mentioned here, was probably still a teenager and probably on the young side of the, of the teenage. He did have a sword. The passage seems to indicate he did have a sword. But I think he had simply been serving as his father's page, uh, you know, an aide. And it's very possible that he had never struck a blow with a sword in seriousness in his life so far. And so his father says, draw your sword and go over and kill these two guys. And he demurs. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is his father, commander of the army, but he doesn't do it. And the reason the scripture says is that he was afraid because he was still a youth. Well, think about it for a minute. You're, let's say you're 15. You got this sword, but you've never actually hit anybody with it before. And you're asked by your father, draw your sword, and here are these two guys standing, hands tied behind their backs. Go over there and... I mean, just put yourself in that place, you know. I have a hard time killing a rat, you know, if I'm looking at the thing, let alone trying to kill a person. I can understand Jether's... You know, resistance to this, even though it's his father and even though it's the commander of the army under whom he is serving. And, and of course, he is not a, he, he, a Gideon. No one says anything bad about Jether here. The implication is that they all understood. What's interesting is that Ziba and Zalmunna immediately say to Gideon, you do it yourself. You carry out this judgment on them, on us. Now, it isn't that they are wanting to die necessarily. It's that they want to die at the hands of a valiant warrior. To die at the hands of a valiant warrior is credible. This means that you would go down in the legend of your own people as having worthily died. It also means, for whatever it was worth, that as you pass into the next world, hopefully whatever afterlife you believed in, you would stand a little higher in having died at the hands of a great warrior rather than dying at the hands of a child, in effect. It reminds me of, for example, of Islam. Of Islam, if you're a warrior and you die in the heat of battle fighting the infidel, why, it's instant glory for you. I mean, you get to spend the rest of eternity basking in a hammock, drinking lemonade with lots of lovely women fanning you, you know. <laughs> this is their idea of glory for a warrior. This is the opposite, of course. I think there was another matter here, too, though. Jether's reticence and the fact that he was an unproven warrior meant that he just might drag this out a little bit. You know, he might stick them in a few non-vital places and the dying process might be a little slow. Whereas Gideon would probably dispatch them immediately and, and they would be over with. I think they were looking out for their own pain here as, as part of the issue here. 
don't let this kid do it. You know, he's liable to drag this thing out. And we don't, we don't want that. And we can understand that too. Now in all this discussion of warfare, of vengeance, of bloodshed, I think it's constantly rem important for us to remind ourselves that the real battle, the real battle is a spiritual battle. The demonic powers are behind the gods of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all these other ites. And they were seeking to destroy the people of Yahweh. It isn't just that the Midianites were out there and wanting to rip off this land for their own good. That may have been in their own minds their primary reason, but there was behind that a motivating power that they may not even have recognized. And that is a satanic desire to destroy these people in particular because they are the recorders of the Word of God. They're the ones through whom God is speaking and giving His Word for mankind. And they are the ones through whom Messiah has been promised. And even though, you know, we might say, why does Satan bother? He knows it's finished. You know, he knows his doom is sure, as Luther would write in his hymn. But it's as if he believes he can win yet. And that if he wipes out Israel, then Messiah can't come. I think it's important for us to keep referring back to that off-quoted verse in the 12th chapter of Ephesians for our struggle. is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. The spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We read in, in, throughout the Old Testament, we read of real physical battles. This, this was a real physical battle. Real Midianites died in the flesh here. And David goes forth and, and conquers all the surrounding nations of his day and really kills enemy soldiers. But the greater battle in all of this is spiritual. Let me refer once more back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that famous passage having to do with spiritual warfare where Paul, of course, if anybody knew spiritual warfare, Paul knew spiritual warfare. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and by the way, the city of Corinth was as wicked and spiritually dominated by evil forces of any city throughout history. It was one of the largest cities in the whole Mediterranean basin. And it was dedicated to many, many gods and goddesses. And Paul writes in the third verse, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Meaning, of course, spiritual fortresses, which it goes on to define in verse 5, we are destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, for we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that, of course, becomes true in the hearts of those who believe. It is true in our hearts. Christ has taken our thoughts captive. We're not drawn away by the spiritual and philosophical deviations of the world. That's why some of these issues that sometimes we are tempted to compromise on are, are not really to be compromised on. Just, just to take one most obvious one, the whole issue of human evolution. 
You know, did we come as the product of this long process, you know, sort of like the Frank and Ernest version of it, you know, where you come up out of the sea and, and, and you know, we, here we are today because we're the product of, of billions of years of protein evolution, or are we created imago Dei? Are we created in the image of God? Fiat, just God, there we are. It, it is not just a matter of whether we want to say, well, you know, we got to give some credence to science here. It, this, is a, this is one of these things referred to in this passage. Speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God because one of the things about the whole theory is that it is anti-God. It is anti-divine. It's, it's absolutely pro-materialism in its basic foundations. And, and it's just one, of course, of many types of speculations and lofty things that are lifted up against the, the, the plan and purpose of God. And I think for us today, it's important that we approach this biblically and yet intellectually too. We don't just hunker down in, inside our shell like a turtle and say, well, we're right and you're all wrong and uh, you tell you what you want, but we're just all right because we know we're all right. But, but we deal with it like uh, Ravi Zacharias does. Well, probably most of us won't have the philosophical background to, to deal with things as he does, but to know what we believe and why we believe it and to be able to give an answer for the reason of our belief and to be able to deal, as Paul obviously was doing here. I mean, think of all the philosophies and, and corrupt thinking that was afoot in Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. It was a proud city. It was a city that would, would not take second place to Rome in the thinking of, their own, of the people of Corinth. Wouldn't even take second place to Athens. You know, the great foundation of philosophy and even democracy. Not that Rome knew much about real democracy. But, you know, it was a spiritual war. And so it is today. Today it just is, it's, it's sweeping over this land. It's sweeping over the world. And more and more people are giving way. But also I think it draws a sharp line between those who are truly of God and those who are just playing the game. Let's read on in, in the book of Judges, beginning at verse 22 of Judges 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet, that's a very important yet there, Gideon said to them, I would request of you, that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, besides the neck bands which were on, the cam on their camel's necks. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. The victory of Israel over Midian by the hands of Gideon was as clear a miracle as any miracle in the Bible. 
And it demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt to anybody who was paying attention that Gideon was Shofat. He was the deliverer. He was God's anointed deliverer of Israel under the concept of a theocracy. Gideon was faithful to the Lord's commands. Gideon was a man of great courage. He was a man with obvious leadership ability. And this appealed to the elders of Israel. Therefore, they sought to establish Gideon as their governor over Israel. And his family is a ruling dynasty. What you're hearing here now is some of the first hints of a desire for monarchy. It's a desire to have a king, which will one day manifest itself in such a way that God will allow it to be. Gideon had so distinguished himself in the midst of Israel's darkest hour, and up to this moment, this since at least the time of the conquest, the oppression by Midian was the darkest hour of Israel because they were hiding in holes in the ground. That the people were ready to lift up Gideon and his descendants and name them as their rulers. You see, they are not seeing the spiritual side of the battle. They're only seeing the physical side. Gideon is a mighty warrior. How this happened, they weren't really rationalizing because, I mean, who was he? the youngest in his family of the least clan of Manasseh. Why would he be the great warrior, ruler? He didn't have the blood for it, if you needed blue blood to be the ruler. But it was because it was easier to trust in a man who had proven himself than it was to trust in a God you couldn't see. Placing faith in God because of his word only is very difficult for most people. And until one is born again, born of the Spirit, it's impossible. And even after being born of the Spirit, we are tempted sometimes to lean more on the physical than on the spiritual. All we have to do is look at what happened to the church. You know, the church which was born in the days of the apostles. And, and by the time you get to the age of Constantine and later, the church becomes greatly transformed. And and focus on the Word of God and, and the presence of the invisible God is transformed by the creation of all kinds of visible manifestations of God. Images of Christ on the cross and, and transubstantiation, the, the wafer and the, and the juice become literally the body and blood of Christ. I mean, these things which become in themselves exactly what we're talking about in this passage. These are, in effect, an ephod for the church. Gideon himself, of course, refuses the honor here, and he upholds the concept of theocracy. He says, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. And in his words, he was urging them not only to continue to follow God's ordained pattern that had existed ever since the days of Joshua, but he was stating a fact. God rules whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. God rules. God reigns. Sadly, the day would come when Israel would flat out reject theocracy. We can't live with this anymore. And they would foolishly demand a monarchy. Let me read from 1 Samuel where this moment arrives. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. 
Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And then this, this verse, it just kind of leaps off the page. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have said to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's spiritual war. They weren't rejecting the man Samuel. They were rejecting the God behind Samuel. The one whom Samuel represented, for whom Samuel spoke. He was the one they rejected. Now, the fact that God is sovereign in all of the affairs of human beings, in the governments of the world, be they pagan or be they supposedly Christian, is very clear from Scripture. Let me read you probably one of the most flat-out statements in Scripture in the fourth chapter of Daniel, where God is speaking relative to that great king, Nebuchadnezzar. In the fourth chapter of Daniel, we read in the 29th verse, Twelve months later, he was walking in the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And believe me, from the records that have survived, that was some palace. The king reflected. <laughs> you know, he looks out over the city there, and he says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Look at the... <laughs> Look at what he says here. I built myself by my power and for my majesty, for my glory. Ah, you know. Here I am, great king of kings and lord of lords. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Now, when we look at that, we have to, of course, balance it with our total understanding of Scripture and God because that would mean, in effect, God raised off, up Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin. Well, yes. He allowed them to come to power because he would use them, of course, to accomplish something that we may not even see yet at this moment in time. And, of course, he allows people to get what they deserve at the same time. God wanted to rule over Israel. And he wanted to rule over them through someone who would be his anointed person to lead them in their hour of need. But no, they didn't want that. They wanted somebody who would always be their king and whose throne would be inherited by his son and by his son's son. They wanted a dynasty of rulers because that's what the neighboring nations had. They didn't want to be different. But you know, one of the most powerful testimonies to the reality of God as an eminent God as being right here was the fact that they depended each day, each month, each year on God's rule, on God's reign, on God's provision. And they weren't leaning on some man and his dynasty and, and his royal entourage and, and his hierarchy of power and, and on his army. 
They had to lean on the Lord. Oh, well, we can't do that. That's one of the hard things for us, and that's what's happened to the church. You and I today, within the evangelical circle, I think we've been taught that we must lean on the Lord every day. We get up in the morning and we, we, you know, we give ourselves to the Lord for that day and we trust in Him through the day. But you know, in so much of the church, if you are a member in good standing, uh, you don't worry about your everyday relationship to God. As long as you're a member in good standing, it's, it's okay. You want to have that sense of acceptance, that sense of worth because of belonging to the group, not because of your own personal relationship with God. And that's where the church has gone on the iceberg or into the rocks or whatever we want to say. I'm talking about the church historically over the past 2,000 years. This is the whole issue that's being dealt with here by Gideon and later by Samuel. And it will be an issue that will constantly keep rearing its ugly head all this time from Gideon to Samuel until finally God will say to Samuel, anoint a king. And they will wish they had never asked for a king. And of course, what happened in the very first king, you know, Saul. Saul seemed like such a wonderful guy, and he turns out to be a really big jerk. And Israel would pay the price. Anytime we try to change God's plan for us, we pay the price. And so Israel would pay the price. But the sad thing we see here is that although Gideon was wise in upholding the concept of the theocracy and refusing to become ruler over them, he won't let the whole thing drop completely. He will say, ah, well, let's see here. Why don't you bring me some gold? I've got a good idea. And it's a bad idea. How can someone stand and say, do what God is telling you to do, and then listen to the devil whispering in his ear telling him to do something else? That's the struggle. That's the battle we deal with. It's a spiritual warfare. It's ongoing. Satan doesn't, you know, if we, if we stand strong in the Lord and, and Satan is thwarted at a moment, he doesn't go to the other side of the world and pretend like you don't exist anymore. He just says, okay, I'll come by a different door. I'll knock on this door over here now instead of that door. Since you barred and fortified it, I'll come over here and knock on this little door over here, which you, you may have left ajar. And uh, so that's why it's a constant fight putting on the whole armor of God that we might stand firm. Knowing that other doors may not be as strong as the last one we barred. And we need to be able to defend those in God's strength. Well, we, we're out of time, so we'll, we'll look at what happened, what Gideon did, and why it was so damaging to Gideon and to Israel.